Good morning, Grace. I am so encouraged to see how many people are out there. Last night, I was wondering how many this morning might look at the forecast for weather and go, I just might stay and watch the live stream. And I'm so thankful you're here. I don't know if you have been coming for the last few weeks and it's been warming up, but I've been thinking about um, on Sundays how many believers around the world worship in really challenging conditions, hot weather, difficult weather, hostile areas, underground church. Um, we are very comfortable as an American church and uh, used to our air conditioning and creature comforts, and this is probably a good thing for us to be stretched a little bit. Anyway, so great to see you here this morning. I'm just realizing I probably need to put sunscreen on my legs in the future. This shade is really nice right here. I want to ask, any of you know what an earworm is? Don't Google image search it. Trust me, it won't come up with what I'm talking about when I say earworm. An earworm is a song or a tune that just gets lodged in your head. Unfortunately, earworms are often a song or tune you don't want lodged in your head. Something that just keeps repeating in your mind on loop and you just can't get it out. Even if you sing something else or you, you say something else, it just sticks in there. Anyone susceptible to earworms? I sing all the time to myself and I constantly have stuff stuck in my head. Kids' movies and kids' shows aren't very helpful. Here's a couple. You're welcome in advance for these. Baby shark, do, 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 baby. How many of you have ever had that stuck in your head? My kids watched the Frozen movie, the second Frozen movie recently, and for weeks there's this part that goes, ah. You know that part? And it would be like a chain reaction in our house. It would be quiet, and in one bedroom you'd hear one kid go, ah. And then it would be, ah. And it would trigger it through the house. We couldn't get out of our heads. Uh, the Lorax movie, I was recently reminded, our boys were watching it and I'd forgotten the worst song in that movie. The, the, one of the main characters sings this song, How Bad Can I Be? And the boys were around the house singing, How Bad Can I Be? And I'm thinking, this is a terrible song to get stuck in your head. One more. The, the second Lego movie actually had a song written for the movie called Catchy Song. You, some of you are bracing for it already. They wrote this song intentionally to, to mess with parents, and it goes like this. This song's gonna get stuck inside you. This song's gonna get stuck inside you. This song's gonna get stuck inside you. Anybody? Hey, that's right. So let's think about earworms this week as we're at Psalm 136, because Psalm 136 is very repetitive. And I was thinking about that songs aren't the only things that can get lodged in my brain and go on loop. But bad ideas, false ideas about God also can act like earworms. They can get lodged in, bad theology makes great earworms. Psalm 13 and Psalm 10 that we've heard preached recently have a few. Ideas like this, God has forgotten me. God has forgotten me. Or he's hidden his face from me. Or the wicked will always get away with it. The wicked will always get away with it. I was reading through the Psalms this week, kind of look, on the lookout for bad theology earworms. Here's a few. God is deaf to me. God is silent to me. God is asleep. God's rejected me. 
God has forgotten to be gracious to me. There's plenty more beyond the ones that we find in the Psalms. Maybe some of these have been thoughts that you have, you've struggled with having loop on loop in your head. God regrets saving me. I've worn God out. God's worn out by me. God doesn't care about my pain. God doesn't care about my tears. God's against me. Do you ever have any of these thoughts looping in your head? And maybe you know at one level they're not true, but nevertheless, they just keep going and going and going. Well, Psalm 136 is a wonderful earworm to combat these sorts of thoughts that we struggle with. If you've ever complained about a worship song being too repetitive, raise your hand, be honest. If you ever grumbled about contemporary worship songs that just say the same thing, you might have forgotten about Psalm 136 because 26 verses, it says 26 times the same phrase, his steadfast love endures forever, over and over and over. This psalm's gonna get stuck inside you. This psalm's gonna get stuck inside you. That's the plan. I think it was written with that intention that the more we read it, that line gets stuck in our head. So we're going to read it here. Turn to Psalm 136. One thing you might notice that's different about this psalm than the last three psalms we've been looking at the last three Sundays is the last three weeks have been directed toward God. They've addressed God with questions like, how long, O Lord? Why, Lord, why do you stand far off? Or who, Lord, can sojourn and dwell with you? This psalm, though, isn't speaking to God at all. This is one of these one another psalms. This is a psalm that was written for us to sing to each other and help one another get gratitude stuck in our heads. So here's how I want to read it. I want to read it. I want you all to read the second half of every verse, which is the same line. So you're going to get it by the end. For his steadfast love endures forever. And I'll read the first part of each verse. And as we go, I'd love for it to get a little bit louder as we go. So you got to start slow. Otherwise, we're going to have no room to go. Here we go. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of God's for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by his understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. And the moon and the stars to rule over the night, steadfast love endures forever. All right, kick it up a volume notch here. To him who struck down the firstborn in Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. He brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness for his steadfast love endures forever. That's not all. 
to him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever, and killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. Gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's he who remembered us in our low estate. For his steadfast love endures forever. He rescued us from our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh. For his steadfast love endures forever. Grace, give thanks to the God of heaven. Do we have the point of this psalm yet? <laughs> steadfast love endures forever. Let me pray. Lord, this psalm can help weed out so many attitudes in our heart that are unworthy of our calling, Lord. This psalm can kill the roots of entitlement in our hearts or discontentment, despair, discouragement, glory-seeking. All of these, Lord, this psalm is an antidote for. I pray you would stir up thanksgiving in our hearts this morning. For some of us here, Lord, our hearts there is, are on empty when it comes to thankfulness right now, Lord. And we need you to, to revive thankfulness in our hearts. Lord, use this psalm to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this psalm really breaks into three sections. The first three verses are the intro to the psalm. And three times it calls us to give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord for he's good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. But then throughout the psalm, if you notice, give thanks is implied in almost all the other verses. Every time it starts with to him who, it's assuming give thanks to him who. And it piles up reason after reason that God is worthy of our thanks. Evidence of his goodness and his steadfast love. It's like a thankfulness tutor, this psalm. It's like a, a loving parent with a, a grumbling child who gently takes their chin and lifts it up and points their eyes at one thing after another for which they should give thanks. Because if we're honest, thankfulness can be a struggle. And the first section then introduces the refrain too that we just read 26 times, this steadfast love endures forever. I've been reading a book, I've been rereading a book this summer called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's a wonderful book on the, the heart of Christ, which is the heart of God. And in it, he refers to God's steadfast love. And I love how he de describes it. Listen, God's steadfast love refers to his special commitment to the people with whom he has gladly bound himself in an unbreakable covenant. He will never throw his hands up in the air, despite all the reasons that we, his people, give him to do so. He refuses even to entertain the notion of forsaking us who deserve to be, or withdrawing his heart from us the way we do toward those who hurt us. He doesn't just simply exist in large-hearted covenant commitment. He's abounding in it. He is determined in his commitment to us, that it will never run dry. 
That's what his steadfast love is. And as if steadfast love doesn't already communicate it, he says his steadfast love endures forever. He never taps out. He'll never throw up his hands and walk away from his children. And the major section of this psalm then, verses 4 through 22, just recount again and again how this has clearly been seen. We're not just asked to take that statement at face value without any evidence. The psalm piles up evidence that God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And this big section too sort of breaks into three stanzas. He looks at first God's creation and that we can see his goodness and steadfast love for the world in the world that he made and how amazingly good it is. And then he moves uh, to the people that God's redeemed and he shows how in the Exodus has God rescued his people out from under uh, slavery in, in Egypt and then takes them into the promised land and conquers their enemies and plants them in this fertile land. At every stage, God's showing his steadfast love. So I want us to walk through these three sections for a minute, and I want us to ask two questions. This is what hit me this week. It, with each of these lines that are evidence, what is it about these things that shows not just that God is loving, but that his steadfast love endures? And these two questions, not just what did God do, but for whom did he do these things? In other words, at each of these moments when God is acting in, in love toward his people, what were his people like as he was doing these things for them magnifies the enduring aspect of his love. So let's look at it. First of all, in creation, verses four through nine, he says, to him who alone does great wonders, and I think we're supposed to think of all of the wonders of the world in which we live. The, the world is teeming with evidence that God is a good God, a generous God, a providing, loving God. And we can look anywhere, but I want to just point to one of God's great wonders that reminds us of his steadfast love. And it might not be one you think. Job chapter 5 says, God who does great and unsearchable things without number, gives this example. He gives rain on the earth and he sends water on the fields. That's just one of his unsearchable wonders. And you might think, well, rain. Years ago, I read this little meditation that John Piper wrote, just thinking for a minute and letting the wonder of rain as a gift from God blow his mind. Listen to this. Kids, listen to this. Think about how awesome rain is. Picture yourself as a farmer in the Near East where it's hot and dry, far from any lake or stream. And maybe a few wells keep your family and your animals supplied with water. But if crops are to grow and the family is to be fed from month to month, water has to come on the fields from somewhere else. Where? Well, the sky. You might say, the sky? Water will come out of the clear blue sky? Well, not exactly. Water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea over several hundred miles, then be poured out from the sky on the fields. Carried? How much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland during the night, that would be 206 million gallons of water or 1.6 billion pounds of water. That's heavy. How does it get up in the sky and stay there if it's so heavy? Good question. It gets there by evaporation. What does that mean? 
Well, it means that the water sort of stops being water for a while so that it can go up and not down. Okay, well then how does it get down? Well, condensation happens. What's that? The water starts becoming water again by gathering around little dust particles between 0.0001 and 0.0001 centimeters wide. That's small. What about the salt? The Mediterranean Sea is salt water. Wouldn't that kill the crops? Well, yes, the salt has to be taken out. <laughs> oh, so the sky picks up a billion pounds of water from the sea, takes out the salt, then carries it miles and dumps it on the farm? Well, no, it doesn't dump it. If it dumped a billion pounds of water on the farm, the wheat would be crushed. So the sky dribbles the billion pounds of water down in little droplets, and they have to be big enough to fall for about a mile without evaporating, but small enough to not crush the wheat stalks. Okay, how do all these microscopic specks of water that weigh a billion pounds get heavy enough to start falling? Well, that's called coalescence. What's that? It means the specks of water start bumping into each other and they join up and they get bigger and when they're big enough, they fall. And at this point he says, I still don't see why the drops ever get to the ground. If they start falling as soon as they're heavier than air, wouldn't they be too small not to evaporate on the way down? But if they wait to come down, what holds them up till they're big enough not to evaporate? Ah! He says, I'm sure there's a name for that too. But I'm satisfied for now that by any name, rain is a great and unsearchable thing God has done. And I think I should be thankful, a lot more thankful than I am. Isn't it rain? Rain is just one amazing thing God created and thought up, and he causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust around the world. And Psalm 136 says, look at this world. Look at the wonders that God has made. God alone has made and give him thanks. Look at the heavens, verse 5. Consider the mind of God who dreamed up galaxies and swirling planets and moons and asteroids and comets and all these things. Look at the earth as God has set it apart from the waters as this amazing, rich and fertile place for us to dwell where things grow that are delicious to eat, both plant and animal. He says, look at the sun and the moon and the stars and all the things that they give us. Kids, do you guys remember the Lost in Space song, The Heavens Declare? Are you out there, kids? I want to sing the first verse. Sing along with me if you remember this. Grown-up kids, too. Every morning when the sun comes climbing Up from the horizon blazing bright East to west all across the heavens Filling all the earth with warmth and light Day by day, this grand display, what does it say? And what does it say? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. They display his glory. And what Psalm 136 is telling us is specifically the glory of God that the sun and the moon and the stars are declaring to us is that God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. But not only has he done all these things in creating and providing for us, but here's what should blow our minds. Who did he create all this for? He created all of this for people who were made in his image to reflect him and know him and love him and honor him. And from the very beginning, starting with Adam and Eve all the way on, we've all failed. 
We've all rejected his authority. We've all doubted his goodness and his steadfast love and, and sought to live as if we were king and we knew best. And nevertheless, he still created it all and we still enjoy it all, even though that's who we are, rebels. We don't just see it in creation though. We see it in God's moving towards sinful rebels to redeem a people for his own possession. Look at verses 10 through 16. The Psalm points us to the Exodus. God had made promises way back to a man who was nobody, Abraham, and said, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make you a great nation. And through you, I'm gonna bless all the nations of the world. I'm gonna make you a great nation and plant you in a good land. And I'm gonna dwell with you as your God and you will be my people, a light to the nations. He said, but first, there's going to be some suffering. Your people are going to be enslaved for 400 years. And so that's where this psalm jumps in, verses 10 and 12. God finally came and kept his promise, and he sent plagues on Egypt to force Pharaoh to let his people go. And then he protected them from their enemies at the edge of the Red Sea, and he guided Israel through and destroyed Pharaoh and his armies in their sight. And then he led them and he provided for them day in and day out for 40 years of wilderness experience. He provided so well for them that at the end of that time, God could say to them, in all those years, your clothing didn't wear out and your foot didn't swell for 40 years. But remember at each one of these, with each one of these verses, what were God's people like as he was doing these things? Think about when God sent the plagues. Moses comes, tells Pharaoh, hey, let my people go. And things at first get worse for God's people. And at first they believe Moses that God had sent him and they worship God because of it. But in the very next chapter, as soon as the suffering increases, they turn on Moses and God and they say, you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh. You've just come to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Nevertheless, God sends the plagues and he, and he loosens Pharaoh's hand and he frees them. And then they get to the edge of the Red Sea, having seen all the plagues and having seen the miracle of miracles that Pharaoh relented. But then the armies come out. And what do God's people do? They grumble and they doubt. They say, what have you done bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we said? Leave us alone that we may serve Egypt. I don't recall that was what any of them had said. <laughs> he did this for, to protect grumbling, doubtful people. And then in the wilderness, he guided and provided for whining idolaters. Again and again, chapter 16, you brought us out into the wilderness to kill us with hunger. Chapter 17, why did you bring us here to kill us with thirst? Finally, in chapter 32, God has brought Moses up to Mount Sinai. He's establishing a covenant with this people, with Moses. And when he's delayed for a bit, they freak out and they give their gold to Aaron, who's supposed to be leading them as a priest before the, the true God. And he creates a golden calf and they all bow down to it and say, this is what the God that brought us out of Egypt. And the Lord doesn't wash his hands of him and say, I'm out. He bears with them for 40 years because the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. We would have tapped out with Israel by this point, but he bore with their weakness and their faithlessness and their grumbling. He persevered with them. 
And then we get to the conquest. What else did God do? Well, he brings them finally to the land that has these nations in it, these pagan nations that God is about to judge. But he's going to bring Israel in, and they get right up to the edge of the land. And do you remember who God kicked out these kings for? The people who came to the edge of the land, sent some spies out. Two came back and said, God's got this. And the other 10 said, no way, they're way too big for us. Those people are bigger, apparently, than the God who goes with us. And the people said, why is the Lord bringing us to this land to die by the sword? Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And again, he doesn't cut and run on them. He bears with them and he takes the next generation into the land and he makes good on his promises and just at the point in this psalm when we might be thinking, okay, great, sure, God has done a lot of amazing things for his people back then, back in these Bible days, but what about us now? That's where the psalm shifts. Look at verse 23. I love the shift in the psalm. It turns from to him who, to him who, to him who, and then it says, it is he who remembered us in our lowest state. And he rescued us from our foes. God's love is still seen in his redeeming for a people of his own possession. And I love, this psalm doesn't give any details at this point. It just says he, he delivered us and he remembered us. And it allows God's people, I think, in every generation to sing this psalm and recount to their minds how in our generation we have seen with our own eyes the goodness and the steadfast love of God. What's he done for us? Grace, he has secured a way bigger redemption for us than delivering us from slavery in Egypt. He sent his firstborn son to be struck down to give his life for us as a ransom, to cover the guilt of our sin, to cover over all of our faithlessness and all of the reasons that we've given him not to love us. He sent his son. Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He's divided something greater than the Red Sea in two for us. When Jesus gave up his last breath and he died on the cross and said, it is finished, the gospels tell us that the curtain in the temple that divided that holiest place that was a symbol to God's people, reminding them that where God truly dwells in his unshielded holiness and goodness and righteousness, you can't enter there. When Jesus died and said, it is finished, the veil in the temple tore from top to bottom miraculously. And it was telling us something. It was telling us what Hebrews 10 says, that we now can have confidence to enter the holy places, the real holy places where God dwells. We can sojourn with God, like Psalm 15 said. By the new living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. He's conquered Satan and he's put him to open shame. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, he told his disciples what was about to happen. He says, now will the ruler of this world be cast down. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. Satan is still on a short leash and he can still do damage. But essentially at the cross, the ruler of this world was decisively defeated by Jesus. And he's given us an eternal imperishable heritage greater than the promised land. This promise that 1 Corinthians 15 reminded us, a new earth 
where we will live with immortal, imperishable bodies that will never fail, never wear out, and we will be with God and see him. And until then, we have the promise that he will guide us and provide for us until we enter into the fullness of our inheritance. And who were we when Christ did all this for us? We were still sinners when God demonstrated his steadfast love and goodness. We were enemies of God, but he remembered us in our lowest state. And he still loves us, even though we still, this week, have been fickle and faithless. We've doubted his goodness. We've grumbled against him in our hearts. We've whined. We've run to other idols still. We've been fearful or foolish or ungrateful, and he bears with us, Grace. He bears with us. His steadfast love endures forever. It's even seen, look at verse 25, it's still even seen to this day in his ongoing providence to a world that's hostile toward him. He still gives food to all flesh. Is that amazing? This last week I was struck. God still gives food to North Korean dictators who, in, who, who enslave millions of people in prison camps. He causes his rain to fall in North Korea. He causes his rain to fall on North China, where the Chinese government is rounding up Uyghur people by the millions and putting them into camps. All around the world, God still causes his common grace to, to provide in extraordinary ways for people who reject him and hate him and deny his very existence. If that's not evidence that God is good and has steadfast love and desires all people to come to know him, I can't think of what else might convince you. It wouldn't be a sermon if I didn't quote an Andrew Peterson song. <laughs> I was thinking with that last line that he still causes his rain to fall on the unjust. One of his songs says, don't you ever wonder why in spite of all that's wrong here, in other words, all this fallen in our world, there's still so much that goes so right and beauty abounds. Sometimes when you walk outside, the air is full of song here and the thunder rolls and the baby sighs and the rain comes down. And when you see that spring has come and it warms you like a mother's kiss, don't you want to thank someone for this? Maybe you've lived your whole life not knowing who to thank for these things that daily cause you pleasure and, and wonder. And this morning, we want you to know here at Grace, it's God who created you and the God who sent his son to die for your sin and save you. You can thank him by name. He invites you to come to him and, and call him Father. If you've never done that, ask him today to forgive your sins, to cover over your sins because of what Jesus did in your place and ask his spirit to come into your life and to begin to make you a truly thankful person. Is gratitude stuck in your head yet this morning? As we wrap up, here's what I wanna do. I know that we're spread out far. I know it's hard to hear one another, but I'm gonna try something anyway. I think Psalm 136 isn't just given to us to help us remember those particular things and give thanks. It's an example to us. It's like a template. It gives us a, a, um, a tool to go out from here and continue to rehearse the goodness and steadfastness of God and to get gratitude further and further stuck in our heads. That phrase, to him who, is a beautiful prompt for thanksgiving. 
We can never exhaust a list of, of to him who, and, and listing all the things he does. So I want to give you a minute. I know it's warm, but sit for a minute. If you have something to write down with or you can just remember it, I want you to think for a minute. How would you finish that sentence? To him who, what? How has God shown his goodness and steadfast love to you in the past, this very day? And in a minute, once you've thought, I want to invite some of you to just share that out loud. I'm going to repeat it so people who are watching us on live stream can hear it. And then we're all going to respond with his steadfast love endures forever. So take, take a minute. To him who what? All right, some of you have something? To him who freed us from Satan's power, his steadfast love endures forever. That's your part. Everyone has to say that part, even if you don't say a specific one. Yeah. Yes. To him who bound us to himself. I can't remember all of the things that you just read, but to him, God, who bound us sinners to himself graciously. What do we say? His steadfast love endures forever. Who else? To him who gives us hope in this pandemic, his steadfast love endures forever. Thank you, Bob. To him who gives joy and peace. His steadfast love endures forever. To him who's the God of comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, his steadfast love endures forever. What else, Grace? To him who welcomes you and forgives you, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who provides for us financially, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who is light in our darkness, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who puts the fatherless into families, his steadfast love endures forever. I was reminded of the promise in Jeremiah 32, 40, to him who will not turn away from doing good to us and who will put the fear of himself in our hearts so that we will not turn away from him. His steadfast love endures forever. And finally, the closing verse of this psalm, grace, as we go out from here, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Lord, please make us thankful. I pray that even... Even right now, our hearts are full to overflowing with wonder that you put up with us, 
that you wanted to put up with us, that you knew what you were getting into when you saved us. Jesus, you knew what we were like when you shed your blood for us and you endured scorn and shame and, and mocking and torture and the silence of your father. You knew it and you loved us anyway. You did it for love. Lord, I pray this week we would live in the buoyant thankfulness that all this gives us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.